Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the sound of one podcasting. I'm Peter Barrett. Today I talk with Avinash Jeff Barnes, who's the executive chef up at the KTD Monastery on the mountain above Woodstock. KTD stands for Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, and it is the headquarters of one of the four branches of Tibetan Buddhism in this country. He and I met back in the winter. Um, We had a nice chat at someone else's dinner party, and I had him thereafter on my mental list of people I wanted to talk to for this. He isn't really on social media and does not have a new book out or anything like that. And I have to say it was kind of refreshing to talk to somebody um, who has nothing to plug. And we talked about his life leading up to the present day. And what I find most interesting and appealing about his story is the way in which, and we get into this in some detail, but the way in which he's managed to combine the principal passions uh, of his life, which are spirituality, cooking, and music, into a life that serves all three of those at a high level and which overlap significantly to form a pretty cohesive whole. Uh, I think it's an admirable accomplishment to have built a life that is so finely tuned to cater to the things that he is best at and cares about most deeply. So for that reason, I was delighted to talk to him, and I hope that you have a similar feeling listening to him. So here's me talking to Avinash Jeff Barnes in my dining room on another one of these incredible spring days we've been having. So how long how long have you been here? Because you you and Paul go way way back, right, to college. Yeah, we go back to college. So are you from here as well? Originally? No, no, I'm I'm originally from Ohio. Oh, okay. But um, I went away to high school. I went to boarding school in New York City. Mm-hmm. Sporting school in Riverdale, actually. Oh wow, beautiful. Yeah, you know, I got I sort of got spoiled there too because the entire dormitory situ- situation was all singles. Mm. So when I got to college and I had to share my room... It was a step down. I was like, I didn't even think about it, you know? Yeah. I, it didn't occur. I was like, yeah, yeah I get to college, I have my room. And uh, I was like, oh, wait, there's roommates. Yeah. You know? But Union had a really good dormitory situation. Mm-hmm. Or at least where I was. In the dormitory I was. Two rooms and a big living room. Yeah. And then the bathroom. So it was a suite, really. It was a suite. Yeah. It was a suite. So you had your own living space. You know, if your roommate had a girlfriend, you would sleep in the living room. You know, that kind of thing. If somebody got drunk and came home with somebody. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's nice. So it was really nice. It wasn't like just the two beds in one room where, oh, I yeah, got That's what I had. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't handle yeah. that very well. I got yeah. an apartment sophomore year. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, and what, so the, you went to boarding school, was there a particular reason you, you just, you wanted to get out of town or your parents wanted to send you to this place in particular? Or? Um, what was the reason? Scholastic. Yeah. You know, I had, um, surpassed the public school system in Ohio. Yeah. And, uh. What town in Ohio were you from? Cle- Cleveland. 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 
And so you, um, did you, in terms of like how you came up, was, was there a particular kind of culinary orientation of your family in terms of... No, like, no, but my mom was really, you know, like a good cook. Yeah. She was for real. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, not realizing as a kid when I got older, I realized what she did. But mm-hmm. I mean, there was cookbooks all over the house and, you know, all of the holidays were... At my house, because mm-hmm. my mom's cooking, mm-hmm. literally, you know, the family. Remember the couple of times my aunts uh, tried to cook, and, yeah. you know, even her kids. I can still remember sitting out there, you know, at Thanksgiving and having her kids go, we are only having holidays at my mom was called Auntie. That's mm-hmm. what they would call her. Okay. Auntie's house from now on. Yeah, yeah. And my aunt looking at us, looking at them and going, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, just, you know, you know, you've got it or you don't, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was, it was cool. It was like, you know, growing up, I remember I went away to school and I got a taste for quiche. And, mm-hmm. You know, my mother named me quiche, and I said, Mom, I really like quiche. Next day, she's like, how's this? I was like, yeah, it's a little too eggy. Next day, she's like, how's this? Said, ah, too much bacon. Next day, perfect. She's yeah. Like, perfect. Wow. That's what she would do. I mean, yeah. I was an only child. Right, so. okay. Okay. And when, um, was she just sort of like a from scratch kind of American cook or did she have a particular, I don't know, geographic or? She didn't have any particular, say, background per mm-hmm. se, but she just liked all kinds of cooking. Yeah. You know, mostly American, but, mm-hmm. you know, she knew some French sauces and stuff. But she had the curiosity she and, had the, and curi- the cookbooks. And the cookbooks. She had the cookbooks. Yeah. She would, she, you know, back then... You know, there weren't all the uh, TV shows. No, it's nothing, really. Yeah, was nothing. So around when are we talking? Uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh-huh. And then once, you know, cable and all that stuff happened, she would, she was on those cooking shows. Yeah, sure. You know, she was just watching them. Yeah. You know? yeah. Did you help her out them. in the kitchen or you just ate? I just ate. Yeah. Back then, you know, when I got older, um, you know, she was getting elderly by that point when I got into cooking, but... Um, you know, as a kid, not realizing the amount of work she was putting into, like, holiday meals and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, And then realizing, oh, my God, all those years she did that. I mean, two, three days of stuff. Yeah. You know, baking first and... Yeah, and then having it all hot and hit the table at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy to do. Even it's for, not Even easy for eight to... or ten people or twelve, whatever. Yeah. Let alone, you know. It was, it yeah. was nuts. Um, and what did you study in, uh, in college? Uh, I got a degree in economics, uh-huh. and I got a degree in music, oh, okay. so I got two degrees. And you were a drummer from the beginning, or you played something else? Uh, I studied piano. You did? Yeah, and I used the music degree. It was a music degree in composition, uh-huh. so I studied, you know, classical, everything, jazz, everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. did, did you want to be a musician, and the economics was your fallback, so you could have, a, like, a, a day job, or what was, the, well, what was the thinking there? The thinking was, yeah, I wanted to have the economics, because it's like, if I just get a music degree, I'm another guy with a music degree that's just a music degree. Right. But with the economics, it shows I have that analytical kind of mind mm-hmm. also, as well mm-hmm. as the creative kind, and it did give me get me jobs mm-hmm. by having that economics degree. Do we working in banks or like how you... Um initial well I did insurance initially for a while. Yeah. You know, I worked for Metropolitan Life. Uh-huh. Still in Albany after school? Yeah, I was after school in that area there and it was it was really uh, an enlightening experience being the insurance man because back then 
you know, you'd make appointments. And, uh, you know, I had a list. Sometimes it was cold call, but most of the time it was from people who already had insurance. So and you would go to their house in the evening, and if they liked you, they would buy additional insurance. Mm-hmm. It was really, you know, you can't imagine that now with right. the internet and everything. But you had, you know, I had my own clients, and if they had a baby, they would send me an announcement, and I would go back and say, now, you know, you probably want to think about getting a 20-year endowment. Right, right. So it was real hand-selling. It was real hand-selling, face-to-face. Those days are kind of gone, I think. Oh, they're gone. I only did that for a couple of years, uh-huh. and then I went, actually got recruited by the private school system in Boston, huh. and you know, I was like, man, this is really, you know, the insurance was like, oh. So remember I was going to sell this, how much was it, a million dollar policy to this lawyer, uh-huh. and we got undercut by another company, Yeah. and I was like, that sucked, because I found him by me calling him. Yeah. And we got undercut. I didn't get to sell, and I was like, well, that sort of sucks. And then shortly after that, I got a call from uh, one of the private schools in Massachusetts. Did you ever think about teaching? You know, it's a private school. Yeah. You have an apartment, yada, yada. What, how, do you, how do they find you? Um, basically, uh, I was sort of registered. There was, a, there was an organization called A Better Chance. Mm-hmm. And I took intelligence tests as a kid, and I did really well all yeah. the way through. Like pretty much through grade school and junior high school. Before I went to private school, I was like the smartest kid in the cool school. Uh-huh. You know, that kind of thing. Student body president and right. shit like that. So when I graduated from college, you know, it is still sort of a mystery because I don't know how you know what list I was on. But, but you were on some. List. I was on some list because. Even once I got to Boston and I was, um, you know, started teaching. What school was that? that you uh, it was to? called the Noble and Greeno School. Okay, yeah. I, I'm from Concord, Mass. So oh, okay. I went to Concord Academy. So, okay, okay. So I know it. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know Noble and Greeno. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were teaching music there? Or? I was teaching economics. Economics. Yeah, yeah okay. so that's where that came in. It was right. economics and history. Yeah, then I started getting invited to um, different openings mm-hmm. and focus groups yeah so it was interesting interesting lifestyle yeah all right so you're teaching economics and at this point out of school obviously is when most people have to kind of learn to cook for themselves Mm -hmm. did you kind of jump in with both feet or was this sort of a gradual it was a gradual thing the cooking didn't start for me till years years later i was um part of a uh, spiritual group in new jersey Mm -hmm. and every weekend Different people would cook. You know, two people would cook, and some other people would prep. Every time I cooked, people were like, "Who cooked today?" And I was like, "Me." And they were like, "You should be a chef." And I was like, "Well, I never, I never had the aspiration of being right. a chef." Right. And so after a bunch of times, I was like, "Oh, well, I'll take some culinary classes," because mm-hmm. I'd already gone back to school mm-hmm. uh, for a divinity degree. Okay. So I got my divinity degree, and I was like, "Well." I like taking classes. So I was like, I'll take some culinary classes. So I took about three classes, and uh, the woman I knew called me up and said, hey, this chef at this restaurant's looking for uh, someone to train. Mm. To, and I was like, well, you know, 
I'm totally not qualified, but I'll go for the job interview sure. just to get the experience and see what kind of questions people ask yeah. and stuff. Because yeah. it was a really upscale bistro in Chester, New Jersey, which mm-hmm. had like, you know, one of the, in the top five, top ten, you know, per capita, I mean, mm-hmm. matches and stuff. And it was, you know, really cool. So that morning I took out my, you know, French culinary books on my sauces, holidays, Monet's, and the, do you know this guy literally almost asked me every question I had just looked up that morning. Wow. So I was just like, boom, boom, boom. And he goes, can you start next week? And wow. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I got to come clean. Yeah. You know, I said, I got to come clean and say, hey, look, I just, this is just one of those. I just crammed for this and got I lucky. Just, I just crammed for this and got lucky, really, you know. And uh, he says, oh, he says, it doesn't matter. He says, there's one thing I know about you. And I go, what? He goes, I know I can train you. Mm-hmm. Right? And I go, okay, let's do it. And so I went back to the school and said, uh, well, I said I got hired for this job. Do I still need to take these classes? Mm-hmm. And the guidance counselor was like, well, look, you already have these degrees and you went to divinity school. You don't need another degree. He says, right. you now have the job you would get when you graduate. Right. So that was sort of the beginning. Yeah. And so, and how then did you make the, like, like describe the transition from teaching economics at prep school to, um, like, what, what led you to get the divinity degree? Because that obviously plays fairly importantly in what you're doing now and, and the way you've managed to combine the divinity yeah. degree. And, yeah, okay. it just so sort of I'm happened. curious what, like, what, what got you from there teaching? Were, there, were different, there were different paths in the middle of that. So from the teaching gigs... Mm-hmm. I was playing in a rock and roll band on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Piano, mm-hmm. keyboards, drums. I drums. was playing drums. Okay. Playing drums, and at this point, I was like, "Okay, I'm really digging this band, and this band, I thought could actually do something." Mm-hmm. And so, I had um, called my parents, and I said, "Look, I need, I need a new car." Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, boarding school probably was all these rich kids. And, you know, we weren't rich by any stretch. Yeah. But I said, I need a new car because my car is looking sort of ratty and everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mom and my stepdad scraped together like, you know, $5,000. And this is 80s. So I could get a decent car then. Sure. You know, and... Um, that you could fit your drums in, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. So... I was like playing in this band, playing this band, and I was like, I think I want to give it a shot. We were living in uh, the band. I was living in Boston. The band was in Northampton, Mass. So I was like, I think I want to try this. You know, we had a whole big Victorian house, eight bedrooms. We were all like, you know, living there. So I remember I went to a music store in Boston. I spent like almost half the money on new stuff. Wow. Kinds of drums, mics, stands, cymbals, like top of the line stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember, oh shit, I gotta make the call and tell my parents that you went I'm, shopping. I went shopping, <laughs> and the money you sent me for the car, I spent on musical instruments, and I'm gonna stop teaching and I'm joining this rock and roll band. Every parent's dream. Oh my god. So I laid it out just like that. And um, my mom paused, and she says, if that's what you really want to do. Uh-huh. And I was like, staring at the phone going, that was it. Uh-huh. That was it. 
That's pretty supportive. It was really supportive. You know, they were my parents were very supportive. So I joined the rock and roll band, and then uh, we did that a bunch of years. From there, I went back home to Ohio for a little bit, and um, I have all these really interesting things that occurred. It was tough to find a job right then. It was like one of those recessions. I don't even remember the year yeah. it was, but in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Tough to find a job. But I was living with my parents, so. But I was away from all of my friends. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was like, God, oh, what am I going to do, you know? Because I was an East Coaster at that point. Yeah. I hadn't lived in Ohio. I mean, I had some childhood friends because it was a neighborhood sure. where people in their houses. So my friends' parents were still there, and they would come, and some of my friends were in the area. But I was different. Now yeah, you've been out here since high school. Since so. high school. So it really so changed you. It changed you. got used me. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did that for a couple of years, and I was like, man, I got to get, uh, you know, I got to get back to the East Coast. So, this is really strange. I was had baseball cards when I was a kid, and I mm -hmm. remember putting them in the dining room in a drawer. Mm -hmm. And I go into this drawer, and lo and behold, they're there. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at all the stuff, and I found like a stack of report cards, and my mother had everything in this one drawer. And at the very bottom of the drawer, I see an old insurance policy, hmm. a 20-year endowment purchased 20 years before huh. with my name on it purchased by my grandmother wow. and I go this can't possibly be valid from being an insurance salesman you know I look at the you know company on the back it's obviously not in business anymore yeah. but insurance policies are sold right. to other companies so I finally track it down and I've you know get the policy number and there's a 20 year endowment and I get the right woman she goes oh Mr. Barnes we're cutting you a check next week wow a couple of days later my friend in New York City called me and said oh my partner in this business decided he doesn't want to do it are you interested in doing it with me and I go uh, as a matter of fact I am so wow. look at my mom mom I'm out I'm gone mm. when that check comes I'm out and so, wow, so those, those two things just lined up. Like, it was, I still, it still blows my mind when yeah. I think about it because, you know, I didn't have the money to move to an apartment in New York City or mm -hmm. anything, but then all of a sudden I did. Yeah. And so that business was very interesting, you know, that caused on the economics and everything too. Yeah. Um, which was, we took high school students from the private school system to visit colleges. Mm -hmm. Um, it's called the Ides of April. So we did that. And in the winter, we had wintertime ski tours. Mm -hmm. And that came about because we were doing that college tour in the summer. We didn't have anything doing in the winter. And we had ski tours at our old high school. So me and him were like, well, what? You know, because we went skiing one weekend. And we were like, oh, my God, skiing is so freaking expensive. Yeah. We would, it blew our mind, you know, because our parents had paid for it. We, sure. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were still young, you know, relatively, yeah. early 20s yeah. kind of thing. And um, so we said, why don't we call up the school, oh, high school, and say, hey, we're ski tour operators and yada, yada, yada. We thought we were going to have to do this big sales job. We get the headmaster and he goes, 
I'll come to the all school meeting on Wednesday and give a presentation. Me and him looked at each other, we're like, was it that easy? So we go to the school and um, give a presentation. 50 kids ran up immediately saying, we want to be on the first trip. We haven't asked our parents yet, but take our information. And me and him looked at each other, we were like, yeah, that's a bus. Yeah, right that's there. a whole bus. It's yeah. a whole bus. Yeah. You know, easy without the stragglers of the people who are going to ask their parents for us. So then we were like, well, now we do ski trips for Riverdale Country Day School, so we can call up all the other private schools right. in Manhattan. Because now this is what you do. This is what we do. Yeah. Hey, we do the trips. And they were like, yeah, yeah, do a trip. So we did that for a bunch of years. Nice. It was, you know, I was hiring my friends at Shopping That's a great business. It was a great business. And in the spring and in the winter break, we were in Colorado. Because, mm-hmm. you know, parents wanted, they wanted to go to Acapulco. They wanted to go to Bermuda. Right. And you take their kids skiing. And we take those kids skiing. And they were like, take them. Yeah. We're good. Now, this is interesting. Insurance comes into play again. Yeah. The thing that ended that business was this. This is mid to late 80s at this point. The insurance did a risk assessment re-evaluation of high-risk businesses, they called. Yeah, I was just sort of thinking that. You're taking 50 kids on a mountain. What happens when they start getting hurt or even one kid? You know, we were covered. We had like a $2 million policy for liability and everything. You can't do it. Our liability policy, I think it was around $3,500, went to like $45,000. So we couldn't do it anymore. We had to let it all go. Hmm. I mean, we weren't making a zillion dollars anyway. Right, right. But it was a fun lifestyle. I bet, I bet. And so when that that kind of um, came to an end, is that when you started thinking about grad school, about divinity school? Yeah, that was divinity school. And were you raised with a religious? No, no. no, That's a whole other story. Um, When I sort of became of age, Mm -hmm. my mother... um, you know, said, go out there and see what you like. And so me and my friend, one friend, we would go to different churches and temples, you know, I was in the neighborhood. And there was a lot of different stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, Catholic Mass and Baptist Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church. We even went to synagogue. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to, i never forget, this was an insane story. We went to one of those call it a holy roller church yeah with a band a drum kit and they just like people get the spirit mm-hmm. and me and my friend were sitting down and said oh this place is sort of rocking this little lady comes hobbling down the aisle sat next to me and my friend and it started getting heated in there right she had a cane and all of a sudden she jumps up and says yells at the top of her lung i got the spirit jumps out of the seat goes in the alley just dancing without her cane and mm-hmm. kicking her heels up and everything now it would be interesting then it scared me and my friend yeah because we didn't want to lose control right we thought in this place we could lose control like something would take us over yeah you know so we were out of there right we were like okay no that's not it that was a little too intense <laughs> <laughs> and did you end up settling on a particular yeah we did it was um it was a Presbyterian church, and the minister had a way of speaking to you and not preaching. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things. It was a modern-style church, 
And of course, it's designed with skylights for when the sun comes out, the skylight is going to shine on the pulpit. Mm -hmm. But when we were there, it was sort of an overcast day. And halfway through the service, the sun pops out ah. and beams of light come shining through. And it was sort of like me and him. We, it was a visceral feeling. We noticed it. Yeah. But of course, in retrospect, the church is designed to do sure. exactly that. Absolutely. Yeah. But it felt but it works. Like it works. Yeah. It's an effective device. It was an effective device. It would never, I'll never forget that moment. We're like, my friend turns to me and he goes, dude, did God just get here? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's good stuff. So back to after the ski trips. I was still I was doing music mm -hmm. even during the ski trips in New York City in mm -hmm. multiple different bands, and to make ends meet, sometimes I was a yellow cab driver. Uh -huh. So nothing really, you know. Once did that business change? I just drove the cab more back then, because then you can make anywhere from a hundred to two hundred dollars a day, cash. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I was like, okay, this I'll do this. So I drove that crazy cab back then and. What I call it, the Wild West days of New York City. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, people who, I remember people at the time saying, is it dangerous? I was like, no, it's not dangerous because you make your own rules, you know? If like I was driving and someone's hailing me and if I go, should I pick that person up? It's immediate no. If I have to question, yeah, yeah, it's a no. Yeah. And this is what late eighties now. Mid -80s, late eighties. Late eighties. Yeah. That's what I, I was. That's when I was in college. I was going to the city all the time. It was. I mean, you wouldn't want to leave valuables in your car. Exactly. On Avenue A, for example. Exactly. That would not have been a good idea. Yeah, yeah. They. But yeah, I never had any problems. Honestly. No. Yeah, no, it was things that people. Those are things that people who don't live in New York talk about. Exactly. How dangerous it is. Yeah, I only had one incident in the cab one time, and it was a really. You know, sort of like all these stories bring in different aspects of my spirituality or my mm -hmm. background or something. But I get in a cab, a guy gets in the cab and it's rush hour. And he gets in and I don't see him because another customer's getting out. Uh. He says, uh, take me to Brooklyn. Italian guy. He says, take me to Brooklyn. It's rush hour. You don't want to go to Brooklyn at rush hour because no. you're going to be stuck there and stuck back. And mm -hmm. You're just going to lose time and money. Yeah. And I go, nah, I don't really want to go. He doesn't threaten me or anything. He goes like this. He has a freaking giant knife. He doesn't threaten me with it. He says, look, I really need to get out of this area fast. And take me to Brooklyn. And I'm like, okay, now's the time where I'm going to be looking for a cop. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything. I'll just pull over and say, get out. Then he can get out. It's not like I'm going to get the cop. That mm -hmm. was my plan. Right. So as we're driving to Brooklyn, he's talking to me. He says, he says, you seem like a really nice guy. And I'm going, okay. Yeah, he says, he says, don't ever, don't do bad things. And, and he sounded like he knew what he was talking about. He sounded like he knew what he was talking about. He says, yeah, I've been in jail. He starts telling me stuff. I've been yeah. in jail. And he says, I'm sorry I had to do that. I just... He literally said, I literally had just leaned on someone and I had to leave the area quickly. So in my mind, I am now relaxed because he's a professional. Right. He's not robbing a cab driver. No, no, no. He's not going to rob a cab driver. So at one point where, you know, we cross over the Brooklyn Bridge and there's a liquor store. And he says, stop here. I want to get something for the house at the liquor store. So he gets out of the cab. Because now you're friends, right? Yeah. He gets out of the cab. And I'm like waiting for him. 
You, yeah, you, you waited. I waited. I'm like, you're such an idiot. I said, if this guy kills you, you deserve to die. Because mm-hmm. all I had to do was pull off. Yeah. But I waited. And he gets in the car, and this big, sort of burly guy breaks into tears. And he goes, you waited for me. He says, I was sure you were going to pull off because I showed you my knife. Mm-hmm. But you waited for me. And he said it was the kindest thing anyone had done in his entire life. His entire life. In his entire life. Because think about what I actually did. It was really stupid. But well, you, were, you trusted it. Like you made some connection on a basis of humanity. Yeah. And you stuck around for that reason. I stuck around for that reason. And uh, took him to his house. Threw me a ton of money. And... It went from being a really precarious situation to like a thing about humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You connected on a level where the knife wasn't really in play anymore. No, it wasn't, it wasn't in play. Yeah, you know. that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've had a number of experiences that have all just served to kind of um, solidify this conviction that you have. You know, this, this, you know, call it faith, call it whatever, that, that, that if you behave a certain way and you make yourself open or available for things to happen, then they seem to have been... That's exactly what has happened. Yeah. You know, from the call from the initial teaching job, that was like literally out of of nowhere. Yeah. It was out of the blue. And then the 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 thing from your grandmother at the bottom of the drawer. I thought you were going to say that you had like a Mickey Mantle rookie year card in mint condition or something. That's what I. That's where I thought you were going with the. You know. I had that though. Did you? I had that. I sold those. (laughs) I sold those in the nineties. Had three of them. Mm. Wow. That was a nice chunk of change. I bet, yeah. I still have a bunch of them. I said, I'm not selling everything. I still got a Roger Maris. Some, I still got some Jim Brown football cards. Cool. Stuff like that. That's good. And so, uh, all right, so you're driving a cab, and you went to Divinity, you applied to go to school in New York? Yeah, I was in New York. Okay. So I did the Divinity School. Let's see, what happened after that? Yeah, that's when I, you know, I wound up, I was playing in a band, mm-hmm. and... The lead singer's name was Olive, and mm-hmm. we were Olive in the Branch. Nice. And, it was uh, just kind of like late 80s, just sort of like uh, punk rock or just in, what we'd call indie rock now. Indie rock yeah. is indie rock. It was indie rock. Um, and I wound up dating her for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we were at CBGB's all the time. Haley, the owner of CBGB's, loved the band, and mm-hmm. so he would book us every third week almost. Great. So we had a great steady gig at CBGB's and we played all the other clubs in the city. But from there, you know, we uh, go but swing back into the spiritual side. Um, I had met my guru in New York City mm-hmm. at a Unitarian Church on the Upper West Side. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. This is a whole other world. She's from India. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting. And, you know, I'm still very new and green and experienced in that realm of cool disciple stuff. And uh, this is where we get into New Jersey. A friend of mine had called me and said, oh, I, there's a realized man who lives in New Jersey, an American guy. And I'm like, sort of skeptical. Going, and realized is enlightened? Is that enlightened, sort of, okay. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, right, I realize guy, enlightened guy living in New Jersey. 
and you know he would have uh, meditation sessions and it's called satsang mm -hmm. you know chanting and stuff and so I went out one weekend and I remember walking into the room and when you're in the presence of someone who's no longer attached to what we call the physical existence and they're there only to serve and help others. Mm -hmm. So it's the, the bodhisattva model. Yeah. And the energy in the room is different. Mm -hmm. I walked in and I was like, son of a bitch, this is real. Mm. And that's where I started cooking is at his ashram. And that was, you sort of volunteered for that? or that's the... Yeah, that was volunteer. Yeah. Volunteering, you know, we'd go out, most of the times we were going on the weekends, and we all eventually moved out there. Uh -huh. How many people? Um, at the peak, maybe 50, but yeah, so different. That's, that's like real, like institutional cooking. That's oh, yeah, it was no job. Cooking for a crowd. Yeah, it was cooking for a crowd. Because that's a whole different skill set from home cooking. No, very different skill set. You know, we had all the, we did a lot of Indian cooking, mm -hmm. Indian sure. cookbooks and stuff. And were you just kind of learning that on the fly? On the fly, yeah. in the cookbook, on the table, you know, making our own ghee and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Was it vegetarian? Yeah, I was vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Were you a vegetarian? Or was Back that... then I was hardcore, hardcore vegan. Vegan, yeah. I was vegan. I only stopped being vegan, what is it, like seven or eight, maybe eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And that only happened because I, all those years of being vegan, I developed a sensitivity to vegetable protein. Hmm. Beans, tofu, I was sensitive to because that's what I lived on for so long. Like if I was traveling and I went to a diner and they had rice and beans, mm -hmm. I would be in heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, I could eat. Right. You know. Yeah, and, vegan's uh, tough, especially back then, and especially the, out in the world, like just traveling at just all. Just traveling. It's murder, know, man. It's, it's murder. so hard. Now it's different. Yeah, completely. But back then it was. Woo. I remember I kept having these stomach problems. I was like, "What's going on?" And I realized it was beans. Hmm. Have you? Um, did you like try it all with any sort of fermented, like you know miso as opposed to tofu, for example? Which yeah, makes like, it a lot easier to digest. Very much so. Uh, tempeh was. Yeah. Way easier to or digest. Or like um, the Chinese fermented black beans or natto right. or any yeah, of those Yeah, natto, yeah, I tried that. But, you know, that wasn't as readily available. No. At all. I no, sure. definitely not. You know, when I was in the city, you know, there was the different microbiotic restaurants that I would go yeah, to. Yeah, sure. And, you know, Angelica, I don't know if you knew Angelica. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was a resident, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and so the ashram was in Jersey, you said? It was in Jersey, near Bridgewater. Uh-huh. How long were you there? Well, like 10, 12 years. Oh, really? So you were... It was a long time. And so I'm just, I mean, this isn't, this doesn't have anything to do with food, but the people I know who are religious, um, and which, this, and, and, and they are members of a number of different traditions and faiths, that, but the thing is, and I'm not talking about religious people that you hear and see yeah, on yeah. the media. Who no, are, no, I understand. That's, that's a whole other deal. People I personally know who are religious. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about as you describe your trajectory. It, it, once you get to a place of, of receptivity and sincerity and, and cultivating this kind of openness and this kind of making connections on the basis of humanity, whether the person is holding a knife or not, it becomes to me very open source. And I say this as an outsider who doesn't, I don't come from a religious tradition and I don't practice. I mean, I did, I did practice Buddhism a while back, um, you know, in college and after. And I, you know, I think a lot, I read a lot, I spend a lot of time in the woods and, and 
Um, but I'm not in any way like a traditionally religious person, but I'm very open to those ideas, and, and I know a lot of people who are involved in a lot of different traditions. And, but it seems like once you kind of break through to this, we're all in this together, there are just a couple simple rules really at the core of it, then you can pick and choose and do kind of participate in any of these rituals with, with joy so. yeah. and with, with commitment and without feeling like you're diluting or adulterating you know, your identity in some way, because it's not about your identity. No, it's not. And, and so that's just kind of what's been going through my mind as I, as I listen to this. Yeah, and it's interesting for me with, you know, the seminary I went to was an inter- interfaith seminary. It was founded by a rabbi and a priest. Mm-hmm. And the reason I went is like, if these two guys can do this, I can go see what they have to offer. Right. And we studied all the world religions, because I don't think I would have gone to just a Christian uh, seminary, because... Mm-hmm. It's limiting mm-hmm. to me, and I, you know. Well, there, there's a lot of wisdom out in the world. Yeah. And a lot of amazing traditions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and much the same way that now one of the joys of being a cook today is that you can borrow from anywhere because there are now incredible books and restaurants nearby that you can go and really taste what it's like, or you can travel if you're lucky. Um, and you know, one of my great joys as a home cook is being able to pick and choose from different geographic influences all the time. Yeah, and you know what I do a lot of times if. You know, it's like, oh, I can can make all these different things. I'll just put in a search in the internet. I'll just do broccoli dishes, broccoli recipe, yeah. or and just see what comes up. Yeah, and yeah, I look yeah, at it, you know, when you 30, have... 30,000 results, right? 30 yeah. million results. Yeah, and you look at, you know, this one has five stars. You look at the ingredients, it's like, oh, I could do that. Oh, I never mm-hmm. thought about putting that in there. Yeah. And then you just make it your own way, you know. You know, as, as a cook chef, a lot of times at this point, you don't need to necessarily follow the recipe, per se, because you sort of know, like, proportions of... Well, yeah, it's like playing by ear. It's exactly. Like you don't need the sheet music. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I do a lot of that. So you did about a decade, eight or ten years there, and that brought you up to, what, about 2000-ish? Exactly, and that's when I moved up here. Uh-huh. And you moved here to, to do this job, or just to, because you liked it here? No, actually, my friend's... Um, you know the Full Moon Resort? Yeah, well, Paul, that's where Paul works. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So before he was even up here, they hired me. And that was another thing. That was another one of those serendipitous things. Because I was at a Thanksgiving dinner there that me and my college friends for maybe 37 years now. The Saturday after Thanksgiving for all those years after college is when we would get together and have our own Thanksgiving so I was at one of these parties, and one of the owners said, oh, I need one to talk to you. And I was like, oh, you know, because I knew him and his wife. I actually married him and his wife. Oh, nice. So I was like, oh, geez, hopefully they're all right. You know, my mind immediately goes, they're having marital issues, and he wants to talk about that. He, no, it wasn't that at all. He goes, well, I'm going to make you an offer to be a chef at Fulmer Resort. And how long did you do that? I did that for three, four years. Uh-huh. And then they were getting big and they were doing these pretty ornate weddings, which was not my forte. Uh-huh. From there... Well, and also that's a kind of cooking. Like if you came from this sort of, you know, in like Hindu or vegetarian tradition, you know, weddings a lot of time, it's, you know, just, I assume there's a lot of grilling meat and things yeah, that you all that kind of didn't necessarily want to be doing. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's sort of what happened. And... Uh, you know, they weren't as established as they are now. Mm-hmm. 
So it was a lot long hours and, you know, a wedding where, you know, three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so it wasn't like you could build a rhythm during the week. It was like coming in on Thursday and it was like, boom. And flat out. Yeah. Flat out. Yeah. You know, I'll never forget like standing in the kitchen for like 12 hours, 14 hours. Yeah, because the minute you're done with breakfast, you have to prep lunch, right? You have to and prep lunch, yeah. It keeps going. Yeah, yeah, it keeps going, you know. And um, so from there, um, you know, I left there and, you know, I got a nice severance and everything. I was just like, was it? You know, they hired another chef. I didn't get really laid off. I could have stayed, but I was like, uh, I, once again, it was time to move on. Yeah. And um, I went and I applied for a job at New World oh. with Rick mm-hmm. Orlando. And I remember sitting down with him and he goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, look, Rick, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to work the line. Basically, he, he goes... Oh, you'll be quality. You'll be the quality control chef. You'll make sure all the sauces are done, and have the other guys do the prep, and you'll prep, and you know. And he says, "Yeah, and you'll be out at a reasonable hour." And I did his brunches. Mm-hmm. I could, I did the brunches. Me and this other chef, who was a culinary from a culinary institute, and we had crazy fun because yeah. he wasn't there. Yeah, we would just do, you know. Yeah, he trusted Sunday you, and he did a good job. What yeah. years? Is, so this is what the sort of two thousand and five, six, seven. Yeah, something around there. Uh, yeah, that's all right. I moved here in '06. Okay. Did you ever go to New World? Oh yeah. Okay. Rick and I, I we go back a bunch of years now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was there, and pretty. You know, we didn't realize it at the time that it was the heyday. You know, you don't know till it's not the heyday. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we had so much fun there. So what the, were you um, were you going to the monastery? Were you doing other sort of things in Woodstock that that uh, got you on their radar, or did you apply there? Like, I that place I applied. But yeah, this is another phase. So from Rick, the woman who opened up the Garden Cafe, mm-hmm. I was in there one day. She knew I worked New World, so she said, "Hey Jeff, do you know of uh, anyone who would?" needs work wants to work in this vegan restaurant I'm opening up and I thought about it and I was like I might be interested mm-hmm. alright let's do this so I was there for a bit too cool I used to live around the corner from there so I was like um, over towards the library like behind the police station right 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 so the garden cafe was just like it was like a two minute walk yeah and uh, yeah we gave you guys a lot of business and more or less exactly the time that you were there yeah were you the one who came up with the um, that Afghan um, like the potato, spicy potato. No, that wasn't me. That situation. was there though. I yeah, ate yeah, a lot yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a big samosa. Those were good. Those were good. Those were really good. Yeah. She so made great cornbread. I did that, and as you can see from all these stories, it's sort of like I'm led on these different things, and things present themselves to me. Mm-hmm. So I was working at um, the Garden Cafe, and a guy I knew from college came in and. Uh, he was eating there, and you know, we knew each other, like, well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, hey, why don't you come down to my office? We'll talk to you about some things. And so he's, we were just chatting, and he's explaining this operations manager job at a printing and data management company. So he did mailings. It was a mail house, it's called. 
in New Paltz. Hmm. He says to me, would you want to do this? I'll pay you this much as a salary. And I was like, oh. Once again, I said, if I don't like it, I can always get a cooking job in the area. Mm-hmm. With my experience at this point, yeah, you know, sure. from Rick and all these places, I know I can get a cooking job no matter what. So that lasted until that crash, mm-hmm. whatever year that was. I don't remember like what year. Eight, like. nine. Yeah. So one of my friends um, went to the, would go to the monastery mm-hmm. for meditation and stuff. And he goes, why don't you apply there? I'm like, why would I apply at this mo- random monastery as Jeff, you know? And I was like, okay. And um, now this is interesting. Like Yum 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 had opened up uh-huh. in Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And I knew the guys who owned it mm-hmm. and everything. And I ran into him in Kingston. I was living in uptown Kingston at the time. Mm-hmm. He's walking down the street and he... Luke. He got, Luke. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. I know Luke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he goes oh, this is going to be my new Yum Yum in Kingston. And I was like, oh, I'm looking for work. And he was like, oh, perfect. He's like, let's talk. And we talked, and like, I never got the back call back. And I was like, did somebody give me bad reference or something? I don't, you know, I couldn't figure it out. Hmm. And this is, this is how I knew, you know, it was divine providence, because my friend said, oh, go to the monastery. And I was like, so I go to the monastery, and, you know, fill out the application, and they were like, well, how much do you want to make? And I was like, I need to make this as a minimum. And they're like, well, that's way too much for us, and, you know, good luck kind of thing. I was like, yeah, I'm not working for less than that. As I leave the parking lot, two guys, two Tibetan guys come up and say, are you going downtown? And I said, yeah. And they said, could you give us a ride? So I go, sure, I'll give you a ride. And I called my friend and said, hey, I gave these two Tibetan guys a ride down. He's like, can you describe them? It was the president and the abbot. Hmm. And they were like, oh, what were you doing? I said, oh, I was applying for a job in the kitchen. They were having problems in the kitchen because they were trying to do volunteer people and like almost pay them no money, but you're going to live here and you're going to be head of the kitchen. Problems. Yeah. So I give them a ride downtown and go okay fine and then I find out it's the president and the head abbot the, the original spiritual leader and so I said okay that was sort of a waste of time but I run into those guys in the Hannafords and Kingston hmm. the same two the same guys, two guys same two guys like maybe three weeks later and uh, they stop and they both look at me and they go hi and they go hi and president goes did anyone ever call you and they go no and he sort of nods his head doesn't say anything and I go okay and I said okay he's the president so said they're gonna finish shopping it'll take him half an hour I was in my house take about half an hour say 40 minutes to get in touch with whoever to get in touch with the phone should be ringing about Ring. Wow. Hello, it's the operations manager at the monastery. Uh, we, I'd like to meet you for lunch at some point. They don't take you to lunch unless they're going to give you what you asked for. Because mm-hmm. they knew I was, I told them I had, you know. Yeah. And so that's how I wound up there. And that's yeah. where I They made it work. They figured out a way to pay mm-hmm. you what you wanted. Yeah. 
And what, so what year is this now that we're talking about? 10, 11? Yeah, it's around, what is it, 19? Yeah, it's around 2010. Well, all right. So you've been coming up on 10 years there now. Yeah, I'm coming up on 10 years. And so how, and in general, because I know the population there kind of fluctuates. So yeah, it fluctuates um, considerably. So what's the what's the kind of range of people that you're cooking for on a given... So like today, there was a small program. It was like 35 people. Um, during the week, it's around 25 people. Mm -hmm. uh, but depending on who's teaching and the event, it could, the most I've done there is 400. Wow. And and it's sort of like I'll find two other people, but it's not like I get a, enough people mm. to make it happen. But I know what to do now when yeah. that happens. You know, basically, kitchen's amazing. It's a good kitchen. It's a great kitchen. Well, that's a big plus. Windows on both sides. Nice. Um, tons of counter space. Yeah. Giant walk. Mm -hmm. Nice ovens. Cook anything in that walk. That's good. Makes it easier. Yeah. And so when I got there... They didn't have a lot of all the equipment they needed uh -huh. that I needed. Mm -hmm. I said, you guys don't have a lot of stuff that you need to really make this work. And they were like, just go buy it. Great. They would have me sign checks. Amazing. So you got the kitchen you wanted. I got the kitchen I wanted. That's fantastic. And, uh, so the, and it's, it's obviously, it's, it's um, fully vegetarian and it's mostly sort of Indian, Tibetan, like subcontinent. No, no, no. no not make, at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Like, I make pizza. I oh, make okay. Italian. So you just do what you... I do whatever I want. Provided that it's vegetarian, right? Provided it's vegetarian. And so you get... To, I didn't realize you had that much latitude. I mean, I assume if you have, like... Do the Tibetans, um, you know, do they have any particular... I don't, I don't know much about the, um, like, the ritualistic context of food in that tradition. It's, are there particular dishes that are called for at certain festivals? Or? Not really. Not really. Um, the only time there is, is New Year's. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll hire like a Chinese chef to come cook for New Year's. Because there's specific dishes that I don't know how to make. Mm. But a lot of times they don't care. This year they did, they hired someone, but I don't care. It makes it easy for me that I get to manage. Sure. You know, but the rest of the year, too, you make what you feel like, what the season Literally whatever suggests. I feel like. And do you take, like, because for me, again, I'm, this is a totally different home cook. You know, I tell people, like, you know, I do three covers a night, right? You know, so it's, mm. it's a whole different game. But, um, but you know, it's like I've got the garden. I go outside. I try to take a walk every day, get in the woods, just smell the air. You know, is it hot? Is it cold? Sun, rain? And different things cause me to want to make different things, right? Yeah, and definitely. obviously now there's stuff popping off every day that I want to use up. Nice. So I get my inspiration from, you know, my experience from the, the, what's right in front of me as much as possible because I think the food's better that way. Yeah. And so on the scale that you are, are working, um, I'm curious how you, you know, do you, and, and beyond that sort of like, I assume there are some exigencies of just stuff that needs to get used up, right? So we're going to use all the chickpeas today because they right. got to go. Yeah. Um, but beyond like beyond that, I'm sort of interested in, you know, in the practice, right? Like the culinary practice that I assume sits alongside or a meditation practice and the musical practice and all these other things. I'm interested in how these, you know. Yeah, the culinary practice for me is this. Um, because you have sort of a captive audience. Mm-hmm. And they eat your food all the time. So you have to have a certain amount, of, what's the word, of the rotation. Mm -hmm. Like most commercial places that are like retreat centers, 
like uh, you know, I'm on faculty at the Omega Institute also, but I don't mm-hmm. cook there. I mm-hmm. do my music there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have the same dish every day. Mm-hmm. Not every day, but every day of the week. It's, so it's like Taco Tuesday, Tuesday, but it's there exactly. For that. Yeah. And that's how it is all year because mm-hmm. if they're doing, you know, buffet for five, six hundred people when they're peaking. They they don't have enough leeway to yeah. just to have no, you can't wing twenty it. something dishes that you make, which is what I do. I have a lot of different days or different menus that I make, and sometimes mm-hmm. I mix and match. Sometimes I do half Indian, half Chinese, mm-hmm. um, and thank God with all of you know the budget. They don't, re- don't have a budget, so I sort of get what I want to make. And so I can, you know, the fake meats, which we all know are expensive, mm-hmm. I, they don't care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as well as tofu dishes and dal. Like today I made red curry dal with roasted cauliflower, uh, mixed vegetables and a coconut curry sauce mm-hmm. and samosas. Baked samosas or fried? Baked. I bake them. Bake them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the wok is great as a fryer, but I was like, uh, I baked them once to see. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't need to fry them. You know, what I do is I spray them all the way on both sides. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it works really well. Yeah. I tend to bake them too. I mean, yeah. partly because like, frying at home is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. <laughs> but, you know, I remember when I first got there and saw this giant wok, I was so intimidated. Yeah. I was so intimidated, you know, I was like, I I can, you know, it's just like a tilt skillet, but I was like, I don't know if I'm going to use that. And once I, you know, one of the Chinese cooks came up Mm -hmm. to do an event and I saw what she did in that and I watched her and I said, show me how to do what you're doing with the actual walk itself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's like now if I leave there and go somewhere else. It's going to be a required piece of gear. Yeah. Cause you can do so much in it. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can so and you much. get that, you know, they that that um, what they call, you know, walk high, the breath of the walk. You can't get that any other you way. Can't you need get a it. badass burner like a jet engine and yeah. you need a big piece of bent steel and, and you just shrieking hot, right? So the food like squeaks when it hits it. Yeah. It's hard to get and you can't in a pot or in a pan in terms of volume. You yeah. know, just keep doing the pan, and then if the pan gets too hot, you gotta wash it and start oil because the oil's burnt. Yeah. Da, 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 da. No, it's an amazing. I'm, it's gonna be, I'll be hard pressed unless they have a tilt skillet if, right. if I'm doing, you know, buffet style. Right. Kind of thing. But at this point, you know, my age is like, that's restaurants are not happening for me. I can't do That's a young, I think that's a young man's game. Well, it, yeah, I think so because the hours are brutal and, and and you're on your feet. You're on your feet a lot more, but you know, and you're you're you do one seating, right? I think kind of the key to the model of what the way you're doing it now is everyone sits at the table at the same time, exactly, which is the opposite of restaurants. Yeah, and why they're so punishingly difficult because service lasts and lasts and lasts. It lasts and lasts. You and lasts. just hit your mark and you're out, just the way your mom used to put down the the Thanksgiving spread. Exactly. Um, and and uh, but also, I mean, you're in this position uh, of having, you know, you follow your own muse, your own inspiration, creativity, and and you know, sort of, you're kind of the boss, and they may and they leave you alone, and they and alone. they sign the checks, so it sounds kind of amazing. Alone. Yeah, it's sort of like a dream thing, and it dovetails with um, because I know you're, you're doing kirtan 
um, you do some here in town too, right? Yeah, yeah. The yoga studios yeah, in town. Yeah, I'm the one who books it. So you've got this sort of, you've, you've managed, I mean, it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is just because you've managed now to integrate, I guess the economics kind of got left behind, but yeah. you've managed yeah. to integrate the sort of the spirituality, the food and the music into a life that, that feels really like, you know, like you've sort of custom built it, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and it wasn't conscious on my part, like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So as, I, as you can tell from these stories... Doors open, doors close, and led me to believe, you know, just to let it unfold. Because, you know, doing that, the 2009 thing when tons of people lost their jobs. And, and, you know, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And there was like that crazy nervous thing going. I was like, yeah, but you can cook. But I was making really good money at that place. You know, and I was also the I was the operations manager there, so I was doing the hiring, and scheduling, mm-hmm. and dealing with clients and the whole thing. So here at the monastery, I do some of the hiring and um, you know all the ordering, inventory, all that stuff. So that brings in all of my skills mm-hmm. in terms of the analytical part of the mind. Yeah, and um, yeah, you know, it's like. Even though it's like you said, it wasn't deliberate. It's not like you said, I want to end up, you know, being the head chef at a Tibetan monastery in Woodstock, you know. Yeah. And, and, but, but, you know, you, there, there's a, I remember reading about, um, you know, chaos theory back in the 80s. There were a whole bunch of pop science books yeah, that came out, that. chaos and other yeah. stuff. That, and there's this concept of the strange attractor, which is something that you can't see, but you can see the way it alters the behavior of things that are orbiting it or. Yeah. And um, I sort of feel like that model is sort of how like cr- creative people who do the work, whatever the work is, and it's usually on a number of fronts, as in your case. But I sort of feel like, you know, we are all sort of like that. And if you do the work and you really build yourself, then the direction can't be predicted, but the result almost in retrospect you can go back and say yeah I actually kind of could have predicted this is how I'd end up because this ticks all the boxes ticks all the boxes and, and you know as a painter uh, I, I don't do a whole lot anymore I do some drawing but I, you know I don't it's not my daily practice anymore um, but it was for decades I mean it was who I was for mm-hmm. the first 40 years of my life and um, it's really interesting to go back and just see oh my god I had this idea 20 years ago I didn't have the chops. I was focused on something else in this image here. But the thing was there. And I sort of feel like when I go back and really kind of dispassionately look at my work, I feel like I really only ever had one idea. And I've just spent all the years uncovering it, peeling the layers back, getting getting it you know more refined and more polished. Mm-hmm. And um, and that stretches across, you know, with the geometry of a painting or the geometry of the ceramics I did or the, it, you know, it's the geometry of my garden. Like there are certain characteristics of all the things that I do um, that are shared across the board because it's me. And, and so this is one of the cool things that I'm kind of mulling over as I talk to you is like, you know, you've managed also to create this sort of, yeah, you know, that's interesting. this realized version of all the different facets of yourself. But right. now in one life that's in a compact, you know, uh, package. That, that sort of, again, ticks all the boxes. Ticks all the boxes, yeah. It's just, wow, when I think about it now, you know, because, um, yeah, I was at Omega Thursday and then back to the monastery and then I'm playing in New Paltz tomorrow morning for uh, 
another kirtan mm-hmm. with a group called the Spirit Brothers. Mm-hmm. And then from there, half afternoon, and then I'm leading a drum circle at Omega tomorrow night. And I don't know how much you know about Omega, but Omega is a great place to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Over the, I've been there for about ten years, doing the kirtans on Thursdays and drum circles, sort of like every other week. But you know, I get to take workshops for free, and you know, when I'm traveling, I invariably run into someone. You know, because as a musician. You won't remember everyone in the audience, but everyone in the audience will remember you. Mm-hmm. So I'll be around. It's like, oh, you're the drummer from Omega, or even as from the monastery. Um, you know, I'll come out and make sure everything's going well. And it'll be like, you know, for the big events, 350 people. Yeah. And like, who's the who's the chef? And they'll point to me. So invariably, I'll be in a random place and. Oh, you're that chef at the monastery. I saw you up there. And so a lot of times people come up and say hello, and I'll be like, hi. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> no idea. But they know me. Because mm-hmm. either they've seen me play or they eat my food, and there's a familiarity that people have when you cook for them yeah. and when you play for them. Yeah, well, because food and music, I mean, I'm fascinated by the ways in which they overlap. Um, you know the the ephemerality of them. The, the you know you you can record music, you can take a picture of a meal, but neither one. I mean, a recording of music is obviously great, but it's not the same as being in the room when it's performed. Exactly. And uh, but they're both. I think that one of the things that defines them as being different from all other human endeavors um, is that they really are. Our experience of them is nonverbal. It comes in through a different way, uh, and. And, and we process it differently. And it really is like a profound, you know, it hits you kind of in your chest, um, you know, which is where all the most important things, feelings happen, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that you're able to kind of meet people and move people in those two ways, it's a, I imagine that's a pretty great feeling. It is a good feeling. And you know, interesting from being at the monastery where you're cooking for the same people, the staff and the monks, the whole year. Yeah. I remember a new administration came in. There's a new one now when the new one came in like three years ago. And we had a meeting, you know, a meeting. They wanted to talk to me about the things I was cooking and everything. And um, of course, people who live there were getting tired of the things I make because it's not like I make 365 different dishes which is what they would love of course and you think about yourself if you go to a restaurant you're not going to go to that same restaurant every day or even once a week you you know but they are forced to eat what I uh, my ability to cook and Mm -hmm. the variety even though it's a good variety Mm -hmm. but over a year it's not yeah so we we were having this meeting and so they send out a um, questionnaire to all the people living there, and, you know, everything. And I said, just give me suggestions. I can make anything anyone wants. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, at the time, I was in a rut myself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, we want more fresh things. I was like, what do you mean? Oh, you know, so I'll make, you know, I'll steam some vegetables and have them plain if that's mm-hmm. what you want, which is sort of what they wanted because I was pretty much saucing everything up you know mm-hmm. fat and salt and, sure you know. well and that's, that's something yeah that's what I wanted to ask you actually is, is um, you know because I was a vegetarian for 18 years okay. and I, I returned to 
meat eating um, when we had access to what I call properly raised animals from the area that I was living in. And so I developed over time, I I understood that my real aversion was to factory farming rather than to eating a, you know, a humanely raised animal from a farm that looks like a farm is supposed to look like. I got you. Um, And, you know, I think we all make our own decisions and, and, and there's a, there's a, I think, uh, it ultimately comes down to just feeling okay with yourself and with what you're doing. And, and, but I'm really glad in retrospect that I spent all those years, which coincided with the years where I learned to cook because I was traveling, I was out of the house, I was on, you know, so I had to cook a lot for myself. I got to live in Europe for a little bit of that. Um, but I think when you're limited to, uh, well, in your case now, the animal products, you can use dairy, right? So ghee is obviously kind of a lifesaver in a lot of ways. Um, and eggs are incredibly useful. But um, you learn how to extract a lot more flavor from food, I think, if you don't have meat to dump all over it. So you learn how to caramelize, and you learn how to wilt properly, and you learn how to steam without like making it gluey. Dead, and, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think there's a, there's a light touch. Um, that you kind of have to have. You have to have. And, you know, most places that are not vegetarian usually overcook the vegetables, I find. Yeah. You know, you want to have a little bite to your cauliflower. You want to have a little bite to your broccoli. You want to have a little Christmas. So when I'm, that's the thing about working in a walk. When I'm working in the walk, it's quick. Mm -hmm. Because if, unless it's going right out, you know, I keep things pretty crispy. Because if it's going to set, and then I reheat it in the oven for service time. If I have a large group, right, so you that's need it a I little it. underdone for that. I keep thing. it underdone. Yeah, you yeah. know, because it's going to set, and then it's going to cook a little bit in its own heat, and mm-hmm. then I pop it in the oven right before I send it out. Mm-hmm. But the thing I didn't tell you is, at the monastery, no garlic. Mm. Onions okay. Onions okay. Sometimes no onions if it's a specific retreat. Mm-hmm. But the no garlic thing is is very interesting. And when I first got there, we're like no garlic. And I knew in high scale Indian cooking, there's no garlic and onions. You use a thing called asafetida mm-hmm. or hing, mm-hmm. um, which I keep meaning to order. I haven't ordered it yet, but um, yeah, someone gave me a Hare Krishna cookbook a million years ago, and they yeah. say very specifically at the beginning that you can't use onions or garlic. Yeah, because they're offensive to Krishna and they cannot be offered to him. Yeah, and. It was explained to me when I first got to the monster because I knew the Hindu side of that and I wanted to know what their side of it was. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a practicality side. Uh, one of the monks explained to me, so imagine you're in a room and everyone's chanting mantras and they've just had garlic. Yeah, I, know, I get it. What's the room going to smell like? Yeah. And another monk told me it was vibrational. Garlic is very dense vibrationally. Hmm. I said, I get that. But one of the real reasons is to do no harm. Hmm. Garlic even kills, they don't even want to kill the bad bacteria in your body. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was like, literally like that, I was like, really? Well, because I know that, like, for example, in the Jain faith, that the the, the really hardcore adherents um, walk with a broom and sweep the ground in front of them so they don't step on any bugs. Yeah. So I get that, but... 
Yeah, I, I, look, I mean, I also have, I have Orthodox relatives who are, you know, kosher, and I find that to be a little nutty too, right? Yeah. I think anything taken too far just gets right. a little bonkers, right? right? Because, I mean, I'm fermenting stuff all over the place, right? I got bacteria and yeast going. We talked about it when you sat down. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I mean, okay. Cool. Yeah. That's, if it works for them, great. That's, that's, yeah, I literally had the same reaction. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, and the other, there was one other reason too for the no garlic thing. Garlic was viewed as a very heating substance. So they did not want to bring up, how you say, amorous feelings oh. in the monks. Like, not quite, garlic's not quite an aphrodisiac, but there's that. It inspires passions. Inspires What's the, passions. So what are the thoughts on, on you know, on chili, on, on actual spice? Right? Because you're talking about like Sichuan food if you're making... They're insane for spice. I should actually cook more spicy food. That's one of the things. Because, yeah, I mean, Tibetan food I've had has been pretty hot. Oh, it's like crazy. What the monks do is they make their own chilies concoctions in jars and they slather it over. And this stuff is... 10 degrees. Yeah, I love that shit. It's burning. It's burning. And it's interesting. The garlic arouses passions, but like that, you know, yeah. nuclear heat doesn't. In, we're talking as hot as you can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember um, Sunfrost had the ghost peppers. Oh, yeah. They had them. I chopped the bunch up and put them in a little oil and put them in this one dish. I said, warning sign, warning sign. Oh, my God, I'll be nothing. Oh, this is so good. And a couple of the Westerners were like, dude, you can't eat that. And I was like, I can't eat it. I barely tasted it when I was making it. I just wanted to make them something really hot and spicy. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I don't make enough hot and spicy stuff because mm-hmm. my palate can't handle it anymore. Mm-hmm. But I should, I should, that's one of the next things I want to do. Is yeah. Well, and also, like you said, you know, the condiment, just having that chili oil at the table is a great solution because yeah. you can make the food on the milder side, but then you can... Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I don't use a lot of hot spices is because a lot of people... It's not like I'm feeding 20 monks. It's right. like five, four, five monks. So they can get their heat from their condiments. Mm-hmm. Have you uh, have you cooked for the Dalai Lama? No, I haven't cooked for the Dalai Lama. All of the real high lamas, like the Dalai Lama and the head of our monastery is called the Kamapa. Mm-hmm. They travel with their own chefs for oh. obvious reasons. Yeah, of course. Because of the political, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. It's interesting, the head of this monastery is called the Kamapa. Mm-hmm. He's like 34, I think. Yeah, he's a young man. He's a young man, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him once the Dalai Lama passes, because they're like the same level mm-hmm. of honor. Mm-hmm. It's just a different lineage. Mm-hmm. So when the Dalai Lama passes... It's... There, there are four distinct, is yeah. that right, in Tibetan yeah. Buddhism? Yeah. yeah, four distinct. Schools. Schools, yeah. Lineages. Lineages, Lineages, right. Yeah, because I know China kind of, they sort of um, anointed their own Panchen Lama a few years back, right? In an effort to kind of like co-opt the whole Tibetan Buddhist. Yeah, and they they did the same thing with the Kamapus. They did. Yeah, they did. So there's an alternate. There's an alternate one. Last year, the Dalai Lama actually was in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And he made a statement saying... Initially, he said he wasn't going to reincarnate. And he said, well, maybe I won't reincarnate because he did not want the Chinese government, once he passes, to say, okay, this guy's the new Dalai Lama. 
yeah. that they can control. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me, man. Yeah, it's man. Really, this is a pleasure. Yeah. Cool. It's good to meet you. Yeah, you too. Avinash Jeff Barnes, executive chef at the KTD Monastery in Woodstock, New York. I'm Cookblog on Instagram. The site for this is cookpod.net. Music by my son, Milo Barrett, smilobee.com. Please like, please subscribe, please spread the word. If you are moved to give me a glowing review on the Apple Podcasts app, I would be most grateful. And uh, tune in next week for another one. I realized this one was a little bit late. Uh, I may actually switch the drop day to Tuesday because weekends are not often conducive to extensive podcast editing and intro recording. But in any case, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>